FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us again for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We are ending today. It's really hard to imagine this. We are ending five weeks now of doing this show by remote, uh, in my case, from my home near Decatur, right outside of the city of Decatur. And all of our panelists for five weeks have been joining us by telephone. It's really remarkable to think about that. I mean, to some extent, I have this great debt of gratitude to the engineers at GPB who make this work the way they do. I, I think that for the most part, the show has run as smoothly as possible, and I'm happy for, for that. Um, and we'll continue to be doing the show by remote for at least a couple of weeks now. Uh, I've been asking you to send me your emails, letting me know how you're doing. And uh, many of you have done that. I try to respond to all of them. It's usually on the weekends that I do that, so I've got a bunch of them I'm going to look at uh, or respond to this weekend. But um, I, I want to just give you a couple of quick uh, uh, items that I'm getting. And I'm not using people's names unless you tell me in your email that it's okay with, with you. Uh, one of the emails I got was from a woman in Savannah. She says, I hope you're not going too stir-crazy trapped in your home studio. You sounded sincere wanting to know how we're faring during this COVID lockdown, so I thought I'd reach out with my experience. She's a manages a medical uh, uniform and supply store inside of Memorial Hospital in Savannah. She's, she's designated as an essential business, but she feels kind of, she says, that it's trivial to say that she's essential on her way to work to sell scrubs, but the fact of the matter is that uh, that medical workers need uh, protective gear. So it doesn't seem to me what she's doing is trivial at all. She ends her email, email by saying, I've had to stop listening to most news on NPR, substituting Harry Styles' new album for my sanity, but I can still stomach political rewind for the thought-provoking questions and conversational dialogue. So thanks for being there, she says. I appreciate that. I got an email from a retired doctor in Johns Creek, uh, who says she's living by herself. Her husband passed away seven years ago. She was a public health doctor, worked on early research on AIDS back in the 80s. She um, was volunteering at a nearby clinic for uninsured people, but when the coronavirus hit, she had to stop because of her age and health issues. Uh, she too calls political rewind. She calls it her daily nourishment. So just a couple of couple of glimpses of the way people are sending me notes about their lives. And I really hope you'll continue. Just write to me at bnigut, B-N-I-G-U-T, at G-P-B for Georgia Public Broadcasting.org. I'd love to hear from you. All right. Um, we're going back to our roots today in the sense that uh, this show started almost seven years ago talking about politics. And today we're going to do a lot of that. But you can't talk politics these days without also talking about the coronavirus. So let me introduce our panel. It's a great one. Uh, Jim Galloway, who is with us on every Monday and Friday, is here. You know him. He's the lead political writer for the AJC. His column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at uh, AJC.com. Jim, at, at some point today, I'd love to find time to talk a little bit about the column 
uh, that you've got appearing in Sunday's paper, but that I assume is going to go online pretty soon at AJC.com. It's about COVID-19 and the automobile, right? Right, right. It's, uh, it's kind of raised the status of the family car again. Uh, you can't, you, you, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of an extens- extension of our sheltering in place. It goes up at the yeah, column will yeah. go up at uh, noon. I, oh, good. All right. So, um, I, I, we'll talk about it. I hope a little bit later in the show, your colleague, Greg Bluestein is with us again today as well. Greg, uh, you've been all over the coronavirus story, but you've been particularly active in covering the activities of Governor Kemp, how he's dealing with this crisis, uh, and you're doing it all while you're at home with your two daughters, out of school, of course, and with a wife who has to be at her job every day for many hours. I don't know how you're handling both, to tell you the truth. There, there was a brief truce in the breakfast wars, the ongoing battle between my, my two kids this morning. So it ended pretty well. So right now, yeah. I'm upstairs. I haven't heard them run down here yet and scream at me. So fingers crossed. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is back with us. We haven't heard her voice on the show for a few weeks, and I know how much our listeners like to hear from you, Mary Margaret. State Representative from Decatur. Are you holding up all right, Mary Margaret? I'm doing great. Thanks, Bill. Let me give a shout-out to another column on the AJC online this morning from Gracie Stables on the issue of shackling children in court. There are a few other small issues going on politically that don't really get a whole lot of limelight. But thank you, Gracie Staples, for talking about this issue we've been working on for a while. Um, I'm glad you pointed that out. Another Political Rewind favorite, a former state representative from Atlanta, Edward Lindsay, is uh, with us again after a, a, a kind of a, you know, a period in which we weren't talking specifically about politics. But Edward, we're really glad to have you back. Your service as a state rep has uh, long since ended, but you are uh, a partner in the world's largest law firm, Dentons, where you oversee the Georgia governmental practices uh, 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 section. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, uh, I am locked out of my office by by order of our firm, and so. But unlike Greg, I don't have any small children, so the only thing I have to report on is my wife is teaching me how to play bridge at night, uh, which uh, is my version <laughs> of hell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's let's get right to it. Uh, Greg, I want to uh, turn immediately to a, co- a piece that you published that appears in the uh, paper this morning. And that's Governor Kemp announcing that he has put together a group of, uh, of officials, state officials and industry business leaders to start advising him on reopening the state for Business, Of course, this is a corollary to the White House announcement yesterday that they've come up with a plan, a three-stage plan, which you've heard about on the NPR News, if nothing else so far out there, um, uh, for reopening one, maybe, you know, as governors decide to do it, uh, states around the country. What do we know so far about the governors thinking about reopening for business, Greg? 
Yeah, we know the discussions are in really early stages. He's talked with agricultural leaders and corporate leaders and, and small business owners. And he's also talked with legislative leaders, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, House Speaker David Ralston. Preliminary discussions is how they're described. Um, I think uh, starting early next week, there'll be more concrete discussions. But we're seeing this as, you're right, there, there's an eagerness um, for the governor's office to move past the, this public health crisis. And it's it's been a somewhat rapid change. I mean, on Monday at his last press conference, I asked him um, – if he was ready to follow suit of, of Republican and Democratic governors uh, on both coasts and start putting together plans to, to, to how the state economy can can revive um, after this pandemic subsides, and he said, right now the focus is on testing, it's on 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 you know halting the spread of disease and making sure the hospitals have enough capacity. A couple of days later, he's he's looking forward now um, to where when this pa- pandemic uh, starts to ease up and when he can start lifting economic restrictions. Greg, do we know what voices in business and in government he's listening to? Um, well, we know the members of his coronavirus ec- economic task force, but I think this will this will extend beyond that. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some more names being put on that task force or even maybe even another committee that, that's assigned to, to devise recommendations. And to, you know, there's just so many different facets of this, it's agricultural, it's small businesses, it's restaurants. Um, there are some plans saying that, you know, that offices could even start to get back um, in the next few weeks as long as they're big enough to maintain social distancing. So there's, there's, there's a lot of different elements to this, but um, they're very early, but I think we're going to see a lot more movement in the next couple, couple of days. You know, Jim, we've seen Governor Kemp, I think, approach coronavirus in kind of two very different ways. I mean, he was one of the governors who hesitated to order the whole state to shelter in place. Uh, he he was reluctant. He said there were parts of the state that uh, were not being affected by the virus. He didn't want to shut down businesses where it could take place. Now, of course, virtually every a county in the state has cases of coronavirus. Then he finally did order um, sheltering in place, and and uh, he wants to increase testing. He's told us that he's got uh, companies that are now beginning to produce more tests, although we still have a real shortfall in that area. And now we hear maybe, maybe he's uh, leaning more toward the Trumpian approach to all this, which was let's see if we can start getting business open. How I want to start with you, Jim, and then give everybody a chance to respond to how you all see this happening right now. Well, f- first of all, Bill, I, I would say the 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 uh, the governor I think is responding to a great deal of 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 tension of of uh, of disenchantment with the the stay in place orders on the on the on the on the on, the, on his right flank. Uh, we all, we all saw what happened in Michigan this week. Uh, when you had a when you had just a, a, a just parade of thousands of thousands of cars organized by a conservative group that just circled the state capitol there and 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 paralyzed things. A couple of things to to to, to note that uh, that uh, kind of have to be worked into the equation here though is George is not supposed to peak in terms of 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 fatalities and cases for COVID nineteen until the first week of May. The the in his his uh, shelter in place uh, the governor's shelter in place uh, order ends April thirtieth, so something something's going to have to be resolved here, and I think what 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 is going to be a major factor here, I think 
Georgia businesses are going to have a greater and greater say in 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 what goes what goes forward, because uh, you know they too have to work a balance. If 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 we open too early, they get shut down again, and we have to go through the whole this this whole process again. They're not going to want to do that. You know what's interesting about that, Edward, is last week when President Trump was saying that he had the power to uh, order states to do his bidding in terms of opening for business, um, one of the uh, most uh, frequently raised arguments against that was uh, people who said, wait a minute, it's businesses who are going to decide whether they're going to open or not. They're the ones who are going to decide whether their employees should feel safe coming back to the workplace. If they're in the retail business, they have to make decisions about whether customers are actually going to show up at their stores. So in many ways, Edward... Government officials can order a lot of things here, but it, it's interesting that it's the business leaders who, in the long run, Edward, may have the biggest input on all this. Well, that's right. And, and business leaders, as a general rule, are a cautious lot. Uh, they, uh, they don't want, A, they don't want to have their employees put in danger. Uh, B, they don't want to put their customers in danger. C, they don't want to appear in public to be callous toward the dangers of this very dangerous disease. And so, you know, you, I think you're going to see businesses uh, step back into uh, opening up in a very cautious manner. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how quickly, regardless of what uh, any state or, or the president may uh, order, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what, uh, what businesses are prepared to do. Mary Margaret, is the governor sending the right signals to the people of this state about how seriously we should all take the shelter-in-place order, how concerned we should be about the rapid spread of this disease? It, is he making it clear that he, he recognizes that, and is he giving us a message that we'd better take it seriously? Or do you have any concerns that we're not quite sure uh, how he feels about all this? There were a couple of stumbles along the path, but I think that his emphasis and his comments, uh, I think last Wednesday, about nursing home issues uh, were significant to me. I heard an urgency in his voice at that time. Most of us that have been watching all this closely uh, have a lot of respect for Kathleen Toomey, and we know that the nursing home issue has been bubbling and is now in a front burner position for a while. I think, obviously, from the perspective of my CDC community over here uh, next to the Emory campus, uh, he was slow to implement the stay-at-home order, but I think that his communications have been decent and honest, and I think that particularly following through on the nursing home issue and the expansion of uh, available beds as we approach our uh, peak in um, 10 more days or 14 more days. Uh, he, he's doing okay. I would say okay. Well, one thing to remember uh, is Rick, that the, the president, if I can sort of inject one thing, is that when he did issue the order, he didn't try to, to craft something different from other states. He simply followed uh, the Department of Homeland Security's definition of essential and critical businesses to try to cut down on 
the confusion is in terms of what could remain open and what couldn't. And I think that's a that that was a great benefit to a lot of businesses, great benefit to a lot of my clients. And the governor's office has been very responsive to me when I've asked specific questions that have come to me based on business shutdowns. And uh, Governor Kemp did not define worldwide wrestling as an essential business like the Florida (laughs) governor does. So I I think (laughs) Governor Kemp has looked business-like. He's been slow from the critics in my district on stay-at-home orders, but I I think that his seriousness about the nursing homes is something I want to applaud. Hey, Greg, you know, it's interesting to hear Mary Margaret say that uh, because we know that the governor, within the governor's own uh, staff, uh, there have been people like his chief of staff who've uh, kind of downplayed the seriousness of the virus and have suggested that people need to get out. They need to uh, circulate. And, and, and he's had to contend with people in his own administration who have had different ideas about how serious this really is. Yeah, they've definitely struggled with mixed messaging. It seems like they're all on the same page now. I will say when it comes to the economic plans, the governor's not out on a limb here because you've got, you know, Democratic governors, Republican governors, dozens of governors all over the state who are starting to plan right now for when the the economy is is back and and, and reopened. Um, So it's hard to find people who say it's bad to plan. Um, what we're hearing from critics is don't do this too soon. You know, don't 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 talk about don't opening do it too quickly. Like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jim, let's move on to another aspect of this. You know, the we know the virus at some point is going to fade away. We hope, and people are going to be able to get out and safely circulate, get back to whatever passes for normal life in the post-virus world. But what's going to take a much longer time is the economy. Uh, your, uh, there was a, a piece published, your colleague James Salzer wrote the other day, <clears throat> excuse me, Georgia State University fiscal researchers say state and local governments could see up to a $1.27 billion loss in sales tax revenues from key sectors of the economy because of the shutdown and its aftermath. Jim, that's a devastating figure. And I look at you. I want to start with you on this, but I really want to get Mary Margaret, of course, involved. I mean, she, after all, is in the legislature right now and is going to have to look at things like that. But Jim, that's devastating, and it's and it's devastating at every level of government. It's because you've got you've got so many uh, arms of 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 counties and cities that are dependent on the sales tax. Of course, a state is dependent on the sales tax. I think for you know it's it's always considered part of the three-legged stool: uh, uh, income tax, sales tax, and and property taxes. Uh, but it's an important part, and and. Uh, we're going to have some have to have some serious discussions, and I, and I too, I want to hear uh, Mary Margaret kind of elaborate on this. But I mean, you could have, I mean, I'm 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 seeing estimates of 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 budget challenges of anywhere from ten to twenty five percent in some cases, and that's going to take. Uh, we are going to have some hard decisions when it comes to to uh, uh, layoffs, furloughs, and and or raising taxes. Mary Margaret? I'm very worried. Uh, I have spent most of my political time in the last month talking with friends about the budget. I am um, estimating that Georgia's loss is going to be over $2 billion, um, and I 
think that our obligation in the General Assembly to pass a budget for fiscal year 21 prior to June 30th, uh, 2020, is going to dictate how we return to the Capitol and what we do. And I cannot say anything about the budget debacle, disaster that we are facing without mentioning that we are facing this without Jack Hill, who is the person on the Senate side that the House people all trusted in terms of the machinery, the knowledge, and the leadership on the budget. The loss of Jack Hill combined with the total disaster of the largest increase in unemployment um, statistics in the history of keeping data between February and March, and the inability for me, and these are the questions I've been asking a lot, to really understand if Georgia's going to be able to maximize our entitlement to the various aspects of the stimulus money is what I'm worried about. The NCSL says that Georgia is entitled under all the stimulus packages, federal stimulus packages, to $4 billion of relief. Well, is Georgia poised today to pull that down in an efficient way? And is the federal government set up to deliver that money? Uh, let me give you one example that I'm trying to trace and follow. Uh, higher ed in Georgia is entitled, based on what I read, to $373 million of federal stimulus money. Last week, the Regent says they weren't doing a tuition increase, and they said that they're possibly looking at tuition decreases or supplement assistance to students as we might not be re-energizing all our regents until January as opposed to September programs. Are we using federal money for that or are we using state uh, reserve money? Those are the kind of questions that I'm spending my time worrying about. Edward, I think I'm right that you were in the legislature when we faced a recession back in 2008, 2009, and had to deal with significant budget issues then, but nothing compared to what we've got right now. Actually, it was greater then, uh, but it was greater uh, over a longer period of time, and it sort of took, a, took some time to seep in, so you had some time to digest it. Uh, we went, and, and I, at the time, I, I chaired the Education Appropriations Subcommittee, and we went in one year from a $21.2 billion budget the year before state for all for the entire budget to a $17.4 billion budget. So a $3.8 billion budget drop in one year. But we had several months to try to figure it out and try to figure out where we were going to make cuts, what we were going to try to protect, what vital programs we actually needed even in that tight budget to enhance given what people were going through. By contrast, what Mary Margaret and the General Assembly are now going to have to face, by and large remotely, <laughs> until they go back into session probably in June to pass the state budget, which they're required to do under the Constitution, they're going to have to figure out this $1 billion, and it, it maybe will be more than that, uh, cut uh, remotely. And as Mary Margaret said, without Jack Hill's uh, guiding hand. Uh, Terry England in the House is, is, is very accomplished uh, on the budget issues as well, 
but he uh, no longer has his his uh, his um, his partner in the Senate, Jack Hill, who uh, I believe was the longest serving senator in the Senate uh, at the time of his passage. And the loss of Jack cannot be overstated. I mean, uh, I went to him several times when from the House side. It takes a lot, as Mary Margaret will tell you. It takes a lot for a House member who chairs an appropriations subcommittee to go to over to the Senate and ask for advice. But I did that on a regular basis. Uh, went to Jack Hill's office and sat down and listened to him tell me what programs needed to be protected. And we don't have that anymore. So that's it's going to be a big burden on uh, on the General Assembly. Um, hey, uh, before we go to a break, which we've got to get to in a couple minutes, Mary Margaret, you sent to all of us a copy of an op-ed piece that you've written that you, I think uh, AJC is going to carry in the next few days. Is that your understanding? I think it might be up Sunday, yes. Okay, so I just want to read the lead and then ask you to describe uh, your concerns. In my long political career, no threat to Georgia lives has been greater than the current COVID-19 virus and never have public policy decisions and leadership been more critical to saving lives. Given the current number of deaths and hospitalizations, Georgia must deliver health care in the absence of having taken advantage of Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. All right. That's how you set this up. Tell us what you're arguing in this article and how you hope to advance this in the legislature. The biggest mistake that has been made politically in Georgia in my long history is the failure to take advantage of expanded Medicaid. And we are feeling the pain of that so significantly given this public health emergency. But again, under the Federal Stimulus Act, their openings for Georgia to be aggressive and how Medicaid can cover at the minimum the COVID illnesses that we are going to, uh, that are obviously 16,000 people out there, many of whom are on the high end of medical cost issues. We do have an opportunity to correct the big mistake we made of not expanding Medicaid in some ways through aggressiveness of the federal stimulus package. And that's my daily comment It is also combined with a daily comment that it's not too late to generally review Medicaid expansion in this area of a public health crisis. I am significantly worried about the delivery of health care in Georgia in the new era that we're facing. You know, Greg, one of the things that compounds the issue of providing coverage for Georgians, uh, some of whom, of course, Mary Margaret... Uh, believes would certainly be helped by having a broad expansion of Medicaid is the fact that on the federal level, President Trump has refused to reopen an enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act. It strikes, you know, we can speculate that this is just another way that he is responding to to President Obama's term in office, but it doesn't really matter what his reasoning is, Greg. The fact is that's another avenue cut off for people in Georgia and across the country. Yeah, and Georgia was kind of in the middle of a great experiment of, of these waivers that Governor Kemp was going to. This, this is, it was going to be one of the bigger stories of this year was was whether or not these waivers that Governor Kemp was was pushing to the federal government to to see you know to, to seek more flexibility in using funding and and to set up a pretty extensive um, new apparatus, a, a new state-run apparatus uh, 
to, 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 to slightly to, to moderately expand uh, access to, to Medicaid uh, for some from poor Georgians. Um, and we're not sure the status of that now because the federal government is and the state government is all wrapped up in coronavirus pandemic response. So way beyond those all right, um, waivers. Yeah. So way beyond that that we need to think much bigger. Edward, do you want to get a last word in before the break? Well, my last word is is that we need to focus on on providing the health care more than simply providing coverage. One of the weaknesses for simply expanding Medicaid. Uh, was we could expand the numbers, but um, but we were not necessarily expanding the way in which people were receiving actual health care. And that was going to be the great benefit of seeking waivers for states to be able to give them more flexibility to actually provide not coverage, but actually provide the actual health care. And that's what we need to be focused on. All right, let's do this. I want to get a break out of the way because when we come back, let's let's return to the core mission of Political Rewind. As I said, when we established this show seven years ago, let's actually talk politics and the 2020 elections because those are still going on, whether there's a virus loose in our world or not. We'll do that after we take this break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway, Greg Bluestein, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay with us for Political Rewind today. We haven't been able to really talk in depth about uh, politics and the elections uh, coming up on the show for a while because we really do think the uh, coronavirus is a story we have to pay attention to. But let's uh, let's dig into this. Uh, as a starting point, Jim Galloway, uh, the Secretary of State's office announced uh, this week that um, – Almost 400,000 people have requested absentee ballots for the now June 9th uh, primary, uh, which is a record number uh, by far. I think about 200-plus thousand voted absentee in the 2018 elections. But but here's one of the reasons I want to dig into this a little bit, Jim, and get your take on um, the Secretary of State's office reports that among those ballot applications— 223,000 people are asking for Republican ballots compared to only 161,000 who want Democratic ballots. There's another 10,000 who are looking for nonpartisan ballots. What what does this lead you to believe, if anything? Uh, Number one, it's, it's following kind of the pattern that we saw in the 2018 gubernatorial race. There was about a 60,000 vote difference between uh, the, the the between uh, uh, Republican ballots and Democratic ballots uh, uh, in in May of 2018, uh, and and this is running roughly the same way. One one thing I would I would I would I, w- I would caution it is that it, it's not necessarily a reflection of of how Georgia will vote in November because you have a whole lot of jurisdictions. Where you know there 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 may not be anybody on the Republican ballot, and so everybody picks up a Democratic ballot, or there may not be anybody on the Democratic ballot, which happens a lot in in rural Georgia, and and so 
uh, so they, everybody picks up a Republican ballot, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily tell you which way they're going to vote in November. Can I add um, uh, a, a okay. question here to you, Bill, and, and, and to Jim and to sure. Mary Margaret and the others? Because I found this to be a complete and utter mystery um, and from the Republican side, because there isn't a really strong statewide Republican race. Now, mind you, there are some really hotly contested Republican primaries in, in three different congressional races, uh, but there isn't that, 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 that statewide race that would be pulling – folks into Republican uh, primary like there is on the Democratic side with the contested uh, Democratic primary. So I must admit, you know, and I always love it when folks go and, and, and pull a Republican ballot, vote in Republican primary, but I'm actually a little bit mystified as to uh, why there are so many more Republican uh, ballots being requested than Democratic, given the lack of a strong statewide race uh, in contention. Uh, in the in the May now now June primary. Yeah, you know, Greg, I had the same concern. Okay, go ahead, Mary Margaret, and then we'll get Greg in. Well, I'm just guessing right now, but uh, the Doug Collins congressional seat is a um, third most Republican congressional seat in the United States of America in terms of Republican performance. So. That's a pretty hot race in terms of who replaces Doug Collins. Is that part of this dynamic? But the real mystery so to me that y'all can explain to me is why President Trump and David Ralston, for different kind of reasons, say that uh, absentee voting is bad for Republicans. It doesn't look to me like it's bad for Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, why don't you jump in on this? Yeah, well, on the first point, um, I, th I think that that in the 14th district, which is also a, a Republican hotbed, uh, and there's about 20 candidates in both those races combined, um, 20 Republican candidates, and, and these are people who are, are tied in with the community. So I think that helps. And also, what Jim mentioned earlier is a lot of these, a lot of local races and um, county level races uh, where there's only Republicans on the ticket uh, is driving some of that. Uh, in terms of what what what, what um, President Trump and both Speaker Ralston and and you're hearing from a lot of Republicans is that you know is the concern about about ballot fraud, which is why Secretary of State Raffensperger has his task force. Of course, Democrats push back very strongly about that, saying there's there's little if any evidence of widespread or or any, or any concerted effort to to use the mail-in ballots to perpetuate fraud. All right, but Greg, as long as you got the ball, I want to ask you a follow-up question. Um, Mary Margaret points out that we've got some hot Republican primaries uh, on the ballot in congressional races, but on the Democratic side, you've got a big Democratic U.S. Senate primary. You've got uh, uh, John Ossoff, Sarah Riggs-Amico, and Teresa Tomlinson vying to uh, be able to oppose David Perdue in the Senate race, and this you know, if Demo our Democrats energized to get out there and vote in this race, or does these numbers tell you that maybe there's just not, a, at this stage at least, a whole lot of excitement about that contest? Yeah, I mean, that's entirely my question. A few weeks ago kind of pointed to that. Um, it showed 40 percent of, of voters were, were were still undecided. Um, there, there is a there is a, a major uh, you know question mark about that. Um, and, and, and as well as, look, there's no marquee name. The fact that Stacey Abrams, Sally Yates, um, uh, Lucy McBath, others passed on this means there's no 
There's no, you know, there's no big voter draw. People who are familiar with those other three candidates, but nearly, not nearly as familiar as they are with, with the big names in the past. And that gets back Jim, Bill, jump in again. to my point. Go ahead, Edward. I, I don't mean to, but that gets back to entirely my point, is that it, it does seem that on the Democratic side, there's just no real ump, uh when it comes to the U.S. Senate race. But, well, Jim, but could, you... you, yeah. you, you at least yeah, go ahead. Point. Go ahead. Yeah, if I if I could jump in here, uh, first of all, I think there may also be a little bit of confusion on the Republican side that the, about uh, about uh, the the Kelly Loeffler race that it's not that it, it won't be on the on the June ballot. It's going to be in the no, November ballot. But I would say that I, I I got a note from a a kind of a Democratic number cruncher uh, uh, this morning, and if you if you look at at the flipped districts. Of 2018 uh, House districts specifically, like uh, 79, which is uh, Mike Walensky, Democrat, and Dunwoody. Uh, 57 of the ballots requested in that district were, were have, have been uh, Democratic. Uh, in 80, uh, which is Matthew Wilson of Brookhaven, 66% of the ballots requested have been Democratic ballots. And in, and in uh, Petrie Corners, uh, that's uh, that. That is. Uh, let me see. Beth Moore, fifty-five percent. Fifty-five percent of the ballots requested have been Democratic ballots. So you've got some. You've got some trends that are holding up here. And I think Jim. Oh, Mary was, Margaret, you're. I think that Go was ahead. one the fact of where the Democratic energy is and where the Democratic energy is going to be pivotal for the twenty twenty election. Um, and also, it, it goes without saying that we are in such an unusual time frame right now that trying to decipher uh, how many people are pulling absentee ballots, which I've not gotten my application in the mail yet, by the way, which I'm interested in. Uh, why not? I just think that it's just too unusual of times. And we all know that the suburbs and the out-of-suburbs are going to be determinative of so many of the Democratic stronghold positions for 2020 elections. But Mary Margaret, you you were an early and enthusiastic supporter and continue to be for Teresa Tomlinson in that Senate race number one. Are, are you not, uh, I guess the, the two issues, one of which you kind of addressed is nobody's paying attention to that race right now, given what we're dealing with with the virus. Uh, but number two, are you worried that that enthusiasm, lack of enthusiasm, could carry right through the June primary well, since for your Trump candidate? Is, since Donald Trump is president, I'm worried about everything. But <laughs> Teresa Tomlinson's campaign below the radar, so through the cities and through the suburbs and through Georgia, I think it's stronger than your numbers tell you they are. I think that people will start paying attention. I think that the diversion of what is a international health crisis is significant, uh, goes without saying. I think it's just too early. I think that the candidates in the U.S. Senate with Teresa Tomlinson are all running races and making some progress, and I think it'll start getting attention, but maybe not yet. Okay, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We've got fundraising totals for the first quarter of 2020 that have come in, and they're really fascinating. I'd like to have the panel take a look at them. Tell us what uh, they think those totals mean. You're listening to Political Rewind.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Greg Bluestein, uh, you want to talk to us about fundraising totals, and then we'll open it up to the panel. I'll just throw out uh, the basics as I've seen them in terms of the headlines. Um, we look at Senate race number two. Raphael Warnock has outraised both Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, although we know Leffler's self-funding her campaign, and so she has $6 million cash on hand. But when it comes to just plain fundraising, Doug Collins uh, had about as much uh, impact in terms of raising money as Leffler did, which I think is interesting. Why don't we start? Uh, tell us about race number two and what you think these numbers say. Yeah, that was my biggest surprise, really, is that, A, that, that, that Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler um, basically matched each other in fundraising when you take into account both of Doug Collins' um, uh, congressional accounts. And then secondly, that, that Raphael Warnock, who is a first-time candidate who has never had to raise money for, for a political office before, um, outweighs them both with $1.5 million. And of course, he didn't have to, you know, he didn't, he didn't have votes and, and he didn't have congressional duties in Washington like the other two, but he also had um, one, met, one less month than, than they did. And I think the other overall trend that was, was interesting to watch was just the, how the pandemic took a toll on finances. Um, right. You know, the big, the big names still ended up raising um, seven figures, um, you know, more than a million dollars. But a lot of these down-ticket candidates really started struggling um, in, in February and March to, to raise money just as the economy started to, to nosedive. I do think it's interesting in that Senate race number two that the Cook Report, which is one of the uh, most uh, respected uh, prognosticators of elections, they've not made a, an outright prediction, but they are saying it is conceivable that Kelly Leffler may not end up being the Republican who makes that jungle ba- election ballot in November. Jim Galloway, uh, that's a fascinating observation by the Cook Report. Uh, yeah, and it's and and there's a, there's some evidence building on the ground to support that. Uh, I mean, with the 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 endorsement by Drew Ferguson, a uh, 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 Republican congressman from from West uh, West Point, is is uh, is one token. I think the better guides there are you've got candidates in the in the seventh Republican candidates in the seventh district, the fourteenth district, and the ninth district, who who are backing Collins, and that is a to to go against a governor. Uh, like that during a primary, uh, usually is a fatal uh, is a fatal mistake. Uh, but obviously, you, you've got some you've got some people who who think that uh, that that that's a that's a safe bet to make. Uh, one thing I'd also point out, in, in addition to Raphael Warnock uh, beating Leffler and and uh, and and Collins in terms of fundraising, I'd, I'd uh, kind of cast your eye over to South Carolina, where Jamie Harrison has has mm-hmm. outpaced Republican. Lindsey Graham, seven. He's raised seven point yeah. three yeah. million in three months compared to Graham's three point five million. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. We have that's right. We have the same situation in Kentucky where the Democratic candidate is out a, a military veteran is out raising Mitch McConnell in this last uh, period. Those are interesting 
uh, signs of potential uh, upsets in the making, although there's a long way to go till Election Day. But, Edward, what do you make of this Leffler race at this point? You, you, you're, I don't know if you'll be insulted if I say you've been part of the Republican establishment for a long time. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I'd like to think that I have been, um, and I don't think that's necessarily a dirty term. Uh, let me sort of first break <laughs> it down. While while you know, I do question the enthusiasm for the in the Democratic primary for those candidates running in June. Uh, I do think there is excitement about Reverend Warnock, uh, given his uh, his long and distinguished uh, pastoral career here in Georgia. And so and you're seeing that in his fundraising and anyone on either side of the political aisle who doubts that he will not be a formidable candidate in November, I think is just flat out wrong. Uh, folks need to take him very seriously. Uh, that's I want to make that first observation. I think that he'll be a very formidable candidate, too. Uh, but getting back to to Doug uh, Collins versus Kelly Loeffler. Um, it's going to be an interesting race. Uh, Kelly Leffler um, comes into it uh, with a very distinguished business background, but not much uh, background on the political side. Doug Collins has been around for a long time, uh, has built a formidable following, um, and, and not just in the grassroots. I think he's also well-respected by a lot of, of establishment Republicans as well. So he's going to be a tough person for kept for Ms. Leffler to, to take out, Senator Leffler to take out. So oh, that's yeah. going to be a dogfight. And um, and I think that it's very clear that it's going to end up in a runoff. I don't think there's any real serious doubt that uh, that the Reverend Warnock uh, will not be in that runoff. I think he certainly will. And the question is, will it be uh, Senator Leffler or Congressman Collins? And I think that's up in the air. Bill, I speak um, as a Mary Democrat. Margaret. Yeah, I speak as a Democrat House person, and I have no conversations with any of my Republican House folks that believe Kelly Leffler can beat Doug Collins. I think that the money that Doug Collins is raising is reflective of people thinking that Doug Collins can win. Um, Doug Collins, when he was in the House as a Republican, rose quickly based on talent, personal skills, etc. His almost cartoonish behavior on behalf of Donald Trump in various ways throughout the impeachment was was a, a big detriment in the view of many. However, he is he, he's done well in Washington. He did well in Georgia. And I believe he will beat Kelly Leffler. Warnock is a star. I mean, you have the most significant faith-based church in anywhere, uh, Ebenezer, offering up a political, a new and exciting political star from the faith community. I think that he has many, many, many star aspects to his candidacy, and I think it'll be Doug Collins versus uh, Warnock in the runoff, and it'll be fascinating. Too originally faith-based, uh, Doug Collins, of course, is a, is a was an army was an Air Force chaplain. Two faith-based uh, contenders for the hearts of Georgia. Um, meanwhile, just to put a, a finishing point on this part of the show, uh, in Senate race number one, John Ossoff outraised once again with over a million dollars his opponents, uh, uh, Sarah Riggs Amico and Teresa Tomlinson. 
but uh, <laughs> David Perdue has $9 million cash on hand, Greg. Uh, that's a formidable amount of money. Yeah, by far the most, the biggest bankroll in Georgia politics right now among anyone who's on the, 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 the 2020 ballot, at least. And yeah, huge advantage, um, a, a huge hill for, for Ossoff, Thomas, and Armico to climb. And of course, that race will probably also go into a runoff. Um, in I guess it would be July now. I'm trying to get my calendar. Oh, August. Um, so we're looking yeah. at uh, we're looking at a, a prolonged um, battle to the Georgia Senate in a race that, as we mentioned, is getting a lot less attention than its cousin, uh, the Leffler Collins Warnock battle. Yeah. Hey, hey, uh, All the, right, Mary Margaret. Could... Real. Go ahead, Jim. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. If I, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would say that that's one of the most un, more understated points of 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 implications that, that moving our primary to June 9th has. It does move the, the runoff into into August, uh, deep into the what should be a general election contest. It's going to it's going that which means uh, Democrats are going to be spending money fighting each other. And and not and not David Perdue. That's that is just an absolute huge advantage for for Perdue. That's a great point. I hadn't even put that in my head yet, but that is a big advantage for David Perdue. Thanks for that. All right, Mary Margaret Oliver, you knew this was coming because he's out your way. Vernon Jones, he's endorsed President Trump. <laughs> he's been sort of a Democrat for his entire political career. How are Democrats going to respond to him, Mary Margaret? I try to make it a discipline not to think or talk about Vernon Jones. It's it's always a bad moment when I'm asked to do, <laughs> asked to do so. Um, I am supporting Rhonda Taylor. I feel that she, uh, the, all of the interest, particularly from Rockdale, the, a lot of those young families out there, uh, all of the interest is to support Rhonda Taylor where I'm looking in the Democratic friends of mine. I think that um, she is a fine candidate. Uh, Again, another faith-based candidate, worked a lot through social justice issues, through a lot of churches out there. And um, the disruptions of Vernon Jones' daily activities are simply not positive. Not positive. And I think uh, time for a new new slate. Let me ask you. Greg Bluestein, there are... Yeah. Real quick, my question, Edward. Real quick, didn't didn't uh, Vernon Jones also back uh, Trump in sixteen? I don't know. He he, he supported George Bush in the past. Yeah. He supported many Republicans. He likes to go to the White House. He likes the attention of going to the White House. So he's been in the Trump White House a number of times. I don't remember if he supported him. That was his race. His race to come back in sixteen. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. Greg Bluestein, the cynics would say that one of the reasons he's made this a big, uh, made a big announcement of this this week is he's facing an investigation as to whether he actually lives in his legislative district. Yeah, and that's that's still an open question. He calls it in Trump's parlance fake news. Um, but look, you wrote you wrote in your show note, Vernon Jones, enough said. And when I got the call that, that a Democratic state lawmaker was going to endorse Trump, I just said, when is Vernon going to come out and say this? Because I knew immediately it was. It's one of those stories where inside the Capitol, it shocks no one. But I was I was kind of stunned to yeah. see how quickly it took off nationally, um, you know, because people aren't as familiar with Vernon Jones as we are. All right. Uh, hey, all Bill. right. Uh, we've only got about three, three. Yeah, real quick, Jim. 
Okay, I would I would point point everybody to the 2008 Senate race where uh, where Vernon Jones drew Jim Martin into a runoff, and he was immediately shut down by Joe Lowry, the late Joe Joe Lowry. Joe Lowry came out for Jim Martin, who's a white Democrat, and and Vernon Jones tanked. All right, Galloway, don't cut into my time to give you a certain a shout out for your column, which is going to be posted at noon and will be in the Sunday paper in which you talk about the car and coronavirus. I, with your permission, Jim, I'm going to read just one paragraph. You, as always, are a superb writer. For we suburbanites, the family car has become the sealed spacecraft that allows us to navigate a suddenly hostile void while properly maintaining social distance. It's a hazmat suit on wheels stocked with gloves, masks, and hand sanitizers into which we escape after each scary trip to the grocery store. Jim, I people should all read the column. Uh, that paragraph alone was, was worth it all. So... People will be able to read it uh, online at noon or uh, wait for it in the Sunday paper. All right. We are unfortunately out of time. Another week of doing the show, sheltering in place. Um, Jim Galloway, Edward Lindsay, uh, Greg Bluestein, Mary Margaret Oliver. So great to have you on today. And I have to say, you know, Greg and Jim, you come in routinely and we love that. But to have two of our favorite political uh, commentary observers back uh, Mary Margaret and Edward has really been a pleasure for me and I think our listeners will agree with that um, we're going to be back on Monday of course and on Monday uh, Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black will be with us because farmers are really hurting they're plowing thousands of acres of their crops uh, back into the ground because their markets are drying up so we're going to take a deeper look at that. And then on Tuesday, Tamar Hallerman and I are going to talk about the flu epidemic of 1918 and see the parallels between what happened back then and today. But maybe more important, look at how different things are today than they were when the Spanish flu hit back in 1918. Uh, my thanks to uh, Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer, Tom Faust, Sam Burmes dawes our producers for another Good week here on Political Rewind, and of course, to all of you who listen to the show, I'm so grateful you continue to follow us. Send me your emails, bnigatgpb.org. Everybody, have a safe and healthy weekend. See you next week.